Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts, Katie Della Sensory and Sean Spittler. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Standing Ready. Katie, I feel like I'm having some deja vu. You are, in fact, having some deja vu, Sean. That's because we did have a episode in season one dedicated to academic affiliations, but it is such an important topic and so essential to really the entire season that it is absolutely worth revisiting. And last year, the program turned 75 years old. So without academic affiliations, you don't have a lot of these innovations and advancements that we have been discussing throughout both of our seasons of this show. So we had actually recorded this episode uh, more than a year ago, in fact, right? Mm -hmm. We we recorded this in Mm -hmm. February of 2021. Mm -hmm. And uh, we spoke with Karen Saunders and Stuart Guildman, who has since retired, but he was kind of the unofficial historian for the Office of Academic Affiliations. And and I think they're very interesting to listen to. They're very entertaining. Uh, they're energetic about about this topic. So uh, I agree. We, we were going to kind of create a bonus episode in season one. And we said, you know what, this would actually be a really good uh, episode to, to put inside of of season two. So here we are. Yeah, I think it's so important because without you know, academic affiliations, you don't have sort of these innovations that VA has has come up with in these last 75 years. And, you know, VA runs the largest medical training program in the nation, and that is due to, you know, the link between medical schools and the VA. So kind of delving into the history of how this came came about and kind of looking at this program in its 75th year is is really important. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, let's jump in. So the Office of Academic Affiliations officially celebrates its birthday in January 1946. But where do its broader origins lie? The broader origins are are really lie with the foundation of Veterans Health Administration itself with the founding of the Department of Medicine and Surgery in the uh, Veterans Administration at the time. And the challenge that was facing America as World War II was winding down was how to provide health services to the many, many veterans who are going to be returning from combat in uh, Asia and and Europe. And the, the status of the Veterans Administration healthcare system uh, prior to that was really entirely unsuited to meet that need. They were understaffed. The facilities that existed were in the wrong places. Um, and, And they really didn't have the tools they needed to rapidly expand capacity to meet this huge influx. So a few things happened. One was they identified the right leadership to create this transition. And uh, General Omar Bradley was brought in from the theater in Europe uh, to oversee the uh, modernization of VA and, and prepare it for this. And he brought with him the physician who had developed the medical services for uh, the war in Europe, uh, Major General Paul Hawley. And together they came 
and uh, were tasked to lead this incredible transformation. And they recognized that there were several things that had to happen to facilitate the expansion of what would then become the Department of Medicine and Surgery, which hadn't really even existed yet. And um, they believed, largely through counsel from others who had been thinking about this for a while, that academic affiliations could provide a mechanism for rapid expansion of the clinical workforce to be able to meet veterans' needs because they had they had to address quality and quantity. And medical schools had staff that could be brought to us on a part-time basis uh, very quickly, but they also recognized that the faculty at the medical schools were generally regarded by their communities as excellent physicians, and that that could solve two problems. One was more the public affairs problem of how does the public have confidence that this new VA that was getting formed would have the quality of care necessary. But there was also just a credentialing problem. How could we fast track credentialing of physicians? Well, if they've already been vetted by uh, respectable organizations like academic affiliates, what would become academic affiliates, that would solve a lot of problems for, for us in onboarding them. So they identified the strategy of academic affiliations. They had to do a few other things to make that happen. They had to create a new form of civil service to rapidly onboard all these physicians and Title 38 was created. Um, and and a little more strategic was they needed places for all of this veterans care to occur since i'd already mentioned that all of the uh, or most of the va facilities were in the wrong places they were in rural areas not in the urban areas we needed and that started a massive hospital construction program co-locating most of these new new newly constructed va hospitals to be adjacent to academic affiliates to facilitate this interchange of faculty who would be coming back and forth and then the the physician residents who would be providing a substantial part of the the workforce to leverage the uh, actions of the the supervising faculty so that we could finally provide access of care to to folks and and that's what policy memorandum number two was trying to uh, to set as kind of the the uh, the policy basis for for this massive transformation for what would become the Department of Medicine and Surgery. It was it, you know the academic affiliation at that time was was the core strategy for uh, reinventing VA healthcare. It wasn't a, a side hustle while we were also going to provide mm -hmm. care. It was the thing. And and to me, it, you know, and Sean and I have talked about this, it just seems like such a, a natural thing. It just seems like, well, yes, of course you would partner with, with medical schools. Right, right. Um, is, is there a reason that didn't happen before? Um, was there, I, like, you slowly start to see 
you know, it developed, you know, in the 20s, VA, um, you know, establishes a research office and starts, you know, kind of um, getting more into that. Um, was there sort of a fear that, you know, veterans would be experimented on or is there, was there any hesitation on, on that? There added? was, yeah, that fear exactly. Uh, General Hines was the administrator of the VA just prior to General Bradley and General Hines had said he didn't want veterans to be guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had largely been opposed to having uh, substantial academic affiliations. And by, by 1946, you know, the, the legislation that creates the Department of Medicine and the Surgery is, is signed by Truman on January 3rd. And, you know, days after that, Northwestern partners with Heinz. Um, and so it's a very, very quick. So I, I get I see that on the um, Veterans uh, Administration side, why they want to partner with schools, um, you know, and it, it just sort of seems like they're that fit a, a need as well for, for a lot of medical schools. Like they were looking for this to come along. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, I, I, I'm not sure that they were looking for it, but it, there were a couple things happening at that same time. One was mm-hmm. there was a, there really was a huge sense of patriotism that, that the schools and the faculty of the schools felt they needed to be able to do their part to assist in the war effort. And, um, you know, the, the physician that they brought in to, uh, to lead the academic affiliations who became the first chief medical director was Dr. Paul Magnuson, and he was mm-hmm. not able to serve in uniform, and he really felt a, a commitment that this was a way he could um, contribute to the effort. Mm-hmm. But there was also another thing happening throughout medicine, which was a, a move towards residency training. So prior to this, relatively few physicians in America had been residency trained. Most people would go into practice right out of medical school. And an interest in what was happening, and this was shared by uh, Major General Hawley, as well as by Dr. Magnuson and the other leaders of the professions, was that they they believed that, that it was advantageous for the nation to incentivize physicians to seek specialty residency training and accredited programs, and that this was a, um, a kind of another goal that VA could contribute to benefit the nation was mm-hmm. to help provide the foundation for this this new level of professional development. And I, I think too, you know, you see um, um, the need um, the needs of veterans in 1946 is is you know across the board. You know, you need just general doctors. Um, you know, you need a lot of uh, mental health professionals, and you need um, you know people who specialize in prosthetics and all of these different things. And um, it's it's great that that timing kind of occurred when it did, when all of these disciplines were, were being utilized. Um, and we had the, the pleasure to talk to Dr. Murray Levin on the program earlier, who um, began his residency at a VA hospital in 1955. So it was great for us to kind of get that. You know, he was he was there almost as soon as, as, as this started. So um, yeah, it, it's great to, to have that recorded. Um, and so kind of moving forward then in, in history, um, how has the mission kind of changed or expanded over time? And, and what are some of the landmarks that move us forward in history from 1946? Well, it expanded 
considerably, right? So I'd mentioned before construction, I think between 1946 and 1958, we built 76 VA medical centers, if you can imagine. Uh-huh. And it, it, it was like slated to be the largest hospital construction you know, project in history, I think at the time. That was what, that's what they said uh, in 1946 was we're about to start the largest, <laughs> cons- not even the hospital, like the largest construction program in human history. Wow. Something like that. Yeah. They knew that they were biting off uh, a pretty big, um, a pretty big bite. And, and that was one of the the amazing uh, skills I think that General Bradley brought was he knew how to organize systems to get things done mm-hmm. um, and and knew how to juggle these plates of build developing healthcare systems while creating physical plant while uh, having legislation be crafted from thin air. Um, you know, he really was amazing, I think, at, and that must have been one of the reasons they they brought him um but you know so the academic affiliations happened you already referred to some other things at the same time they're developing the academic affiliations with schools of medicine they're doing foundational work in developing the profession of clinical psychology as we recognize it in america it it existed before va but VA provided huge impetus to um, tightening up standards for education and and practice. Vocational rehab uh, advanced considerably. And and, and, uh, just to mention even what what the concept of a hospital was, one of the things Dr. Hawley contributed was the incorporation of psychiatric inpatient care in a general medical surgical hospital. That really wasn't a thing in the United States. The military started doing that in field hospitals in Europe uh, under Hawley's leadership, and he insisted that there be what what they called in, in the 40s neuropsychiatric units within each VA medical center. And, and this really revolutionized how mental health was treated and its uh, interaction with with other uh, other health conditions and and the interaction of psychiatry psychology and other mental health care with uh, with all other uh, health care and and you know in the at that time in the late 40s they already had worked out the blueprints of what a standard you know, hospitals should look like and what floor the mental health unit should be on and how it interacted mm-hmm. with the other units. It was really a very sophisticated um, thing. And and so even from that time, this interaction and this uh, of what's our system of care with our system of education, they were really inextricable. They were inextricably linked in those at that time. And I and I think that that's been a fundamental theme of the history of, of Veterans Health Administration is how inextricably linked academic mission is to what our system of care is. And, and of course, Dr. Sanders will be able to talk about, I'm sure in a few minutes, about how that gets manifested in 2021 now. But um, but there, you know, there had been in this interval continued growth of uh, our affiliations in terms of numbers of schools of medicine and and varieties of affiliations with other types of professional schools. 
there have been an expansion of types of specialties that we funded. There a substantial expansion of the budget that was uh, devoted to funding the education and a substantial effort at recruiting staff and faculty to come play these roles of being direct care providers, being clinical supervisors, faculty and preceptors, and being researchers, because we can't also extract the research mission from this because the best clinical research happens in places where you've you've got um, an academic learning and practice environment. This season on Standing Ready, we are looking at uh, the innovations that have come out of academic uh, affiliations. Uh, we're looking at things like the development of the cardiac pacemaker, the first successful liver transplant, the nicotine patch. Uh, so I just kind of want to ask, would these have been possible without that partnership with academic affiliations? Uh, I personally think not. Dr. Sanders, what do you, what do you think? I think absolutely not. Um, right. I, I think uh, the things that we're most proud of ended up as a direct result of our academic affiliations. Our Nobel Prize winners, our research enterprise, all are built on that foundation of partnership. Um, and the educational programs themselves, of course, are built on this infrastructure of these partnerships, these affiliation agreements. Um, and it's funny, back in 1946, and for gosh, probably three decades after that, there was no such thing as a written agreement, right? There was no signed document that says we have an affiliation. There was just a handshake. Yep, we'll send your people over and they can take care of my veterans, right? So um, it was so much easier back then. Um, but uh, now we have lots of agreements and legal, you know, legal things that must be executed to have partners. But the fact is that these are integral to the VA system of care at this point in time. I think handshakes could make bureaucracy a lot easier if that's just the way we, <laughs> like, yep, we're going to send over some doctors. That sounds good. Totally fine. Thank you. And what do you think uh, Bradley, Holly, and Magnuson would think or say about the Office of Academic Affiliations today? Could they have envisioned the advancements that the program has made? It's been really hard for me to kind of get into their heads, um, certainly for Bradley and, and Holly. Bradley wrote an autobiography. Holly never wrote much about himself. Um, I, you know, I think that there would be, I, I think they would absolutely remain committed to the academic mission being an integral part to accomplish the clinical care mission, that that would still be obvious and make perfect sense to them. And I think they would be really proud uh, for what grew out of the vision that they were able to implement in an incredibly short period of time. I was going to just agree with Stu on that point, that I think they could absolutely recognize today's VA and how it came about through what they executed way back then, that that was the infrastructure. They built the infrastructure for today's right. VA, right. and they would recognize that. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I, I think, you know, they're coming in in the fall of 1945, and they just have this huge, 
you know, problem they need to solve of how are we going to provide care to 16 million veterans. And they, you know, they're on very limited time to be able to do that. So I, I think they, you know, they just saw a problem and like they had that battlefield mentality that they had in the war and like, okay, we're going to, we're going to move ahead and we're going to fix this. And, you know, if the bureaucracy is standing in our way, well, we're going to plow right through that. And uh, yeah, I, I think that for them, they would just be so, you know, thrilled and honored that VA is still providing care to, to its veterans and in the magnitude and scope um, that we are today. I, yeah, I think, I think they would be impressed. I, I hate to la- let this um, this look back uh, go by without mentioning Title 38. Um, and I think we should talk a little bit about that, Stu, of how <laughs> that revolutionized, that was equally revolutionary in its own time by abandoning every construct in civil service, by saying, no, you don't have to take an exam. You are going, we're going to see a good professional and we're going to be able to hire them without competition, I think that was another just huge infrastructure development uh, that allowed VA to, you know, actually just hire good positions uh, as we as we have. Um, it just abandoned the, the very bureaucratic civil service hiring mechanisms and just created this whole other supposedly easier system to do it. And it was much easier. Uh, and it still is much easier to not have to compete for uh, to compete our jobs for healthcare professionals. Yeah, but they took a, it was quite a fight for them to get that. They the rumors are uh, that Bradley went to the mat and threatened to resign if the president wouldn't support the legislation. And there was a lot of opposition from government employee unions and from uh, political opposition. Um, to uh, this innovation, which, yeah, so let's see, what Title 38 was able to do then was to identify ways to fast track recruitment and appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, it also it also permitted part-time appointment and allowed that flexibility for faculty to, to circulate back and forth in a more fluid way that would be much more efficient and permit the, uh, the expert faculty from uh, the affiliate to be able to come when they're needed to be at the VA uh, hospital. Um, so yeah, and and of course Title 38's been expanded in a variety of ways, and some other ways perhaps it's been whittled away at, but it is still foundationally important to uh, to VA and our our modern ability to function. Karen, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, that was one of the conditions that um, Bradley and Holly were facing, you know, and I, I believe Holly said something like, you know, he was presented a list of suitable candidates that he could hire and they were all like over 80 years old or something like that. So removing that requirement really allowed, you know, and and they they weren't quite, you know, uh, cutting edge, you know, when you're when you're that old. So by by getting rid of that, you could hire a younger doctor more easily um, who could provide, you know, more modern care to to veterans? Well, I I think that part of the issue, even from the civil service lists, where some people were not even licensed. Um, They were unlicensed providers, substandard providers, providers that had disciplinary actions. Um, So it wasn't a very, you know, uh, really uplifting uh, VA service. How how bad was it? 
it was it was so bad that when General Hawley spoke to the American Medical Association, he he uh, he said to them something along the lines of, "You might not believe this when I tell you today, but someday." VA physicians will be good enough that you'll allow them to be members of the AMA. Now, wow. that goes back. There's a lot of we got we could get into what the AMA was in 1940, whatever, too. But still, the the general reputation of the medical staff of VA before this uh, transformation was not great. The, the public did not have confidence in the VA to meet the medical needs. And, you know, and some of that goes way back even to uh, the VA's ability to fulfill a variety of other benefits uh, challenges earlier in uh, in the century. So, so this was, yeah, <laughs> they, they have, they had a lot of work to do to get the medical staff uh, up to snuff in every dimension imaginable. Yeah, and, and I was going to say that the amazing thing is, I you know, I I did not rotate through VA as a medical student, but I came uh, to VA after I graduated as part of my internship and residency in Rhode Island. So this was the late '70s. So this was only like, you know, three decades after all of this had happened, right? By the late '70s, it's only. 30 years later, um, one generation, and already I, it was highly academic, professors, um, students, residents, uh, a, a, a scholarly approach to care, evidence. Um, I, it, it's amazing that that happened that fast. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I saw it with my own eyes as an intern and resident. This was already a, a, a different place. Especially wow. as, as a historian who's been looking at history in the federal government for, for a while, there are very few times in, in the history of the federal government where something happens that quickly that is that right. You know, that's not to say that there needed to be changes and it needed to be, you know, um, amended down the road. But for, for them um, in 1946 to, to get something together that quickly, that made such an impact. It's it's um, it's unbelievable. So, uh, Dr. Sanders, as you reflect on the 75 years of academic affiliations, can you can you give us an overview of what OAA is today since we're kind of on that topic a little bit? OAA is the VHA office where the academic mission of the agency sits. Um, we uh, we have a staff of 60 now. That's that's bigger than it's been in the past. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we've been growing over, over the decade or so that I've been here. Um, but I think uh, we, we are organized around some certain types of clinical uh, professions. We have a, an entire clinical section on um, medical and dental education. We have a section called nursing education. We have a section called Associated Health Education, which has most of the professions except for medicine and uh, nursing. And then we have a service line that Stu runs, uh, which is our advanced fellowships and uh, professional development, which are uh, small programs, not accredited programs that really meet specific VA needs. Uh, so we're organized around these uh, clinical service lines, but then of course we have some administrative support you know, sections that do uh, budgeting and finance and HR and, and things like that. 
Um, I think, uh, you know, in terms of our role in the organization, we're, we're very much in the relationship business. If I'd have to summarize what we do, uh, we're, we're not only, uh, you know, invested in our relationships with the education uh, stakeholders in VA itself, which is our education community, the trainees, the preceptors, the supervisors, and the education administration staff out in all the facilities around the country. But we function as the relationship uh, office to outside VA as well. We are we are have relationships with professional societies like the Association of American Medical Colleges or the American Psychological Association, with accrediting bodies like uh, the um, the the Association, the ACGME, the ACCME, um, you name it. So accrediting bodies, member organizations, specialty societies. So we stay, I think, uh, very much connected to the pulse of health professions education across the country. And these relationships help these organizations to know what's going on in VA, and it also helps us stay abreast of new developments in health professions education. Uh, you know, licensing, new levels of practice, new scopes of practice. So I think we're we're a connector in a way to the entire field of health professions education. Um, and I think that has stood us in good stead for the VA as a whole and for veteran care, certainly. How would you say um, academic affiliations has adapted during the COVID-19 pandemic and what sort of innovations have been spurred by that and, and um, how, how has that been handled? So um, I think uh, we did pretty good in terms of being trying to be very flexible for a federal bureaucracy. Um, we, we found out right away that, of course, the move was to virtual care um, and the real questions we were uh, confronting right away was um, how will the trainees intersect with virtual care? Um, how will they be, be allowed to, um, you know, deal with patients? Will the, how will the supervision occur? Uh, will their supervisors have to be on the calls with the trainees? Can they just check in at times? I think, can they do virtual care from home? Must they do it from the facility? Um, what's the safest options for our trainees and our supervisors to provide continue, continuous veteran care? So we were confronted very early with some of these questions. And I think we responded. We, we immediately changed our supervision rules to allow kind of virtual and remote um, supervision. We allowed trainees to telework from home if that was the safest option and to provide veteran care from home. Uh, we, of course, uh, tried to expedite uh, telework training for trainees so they, they could only have to read a one-page handout instead of taking a TMS module. Um, we dispensed with telework agreements for our trainees, thinking that everybody knew what they were. They didn't have to sign a telework agreement. And apparently there's a part of a law that says in an emergency you can let people telework without a signed agreement. Um, so we were just looking for flexibility after flexibility to preserve veteran care. Uh, keep our trainees and supervisors safe, and yet, uh, you know, continue to, to to march forward with uh, making sure there was, uh, you know, no step unturned in the in the process. I think we did a relatively good job. Uh, we we did weekly COVID calls for a while. Our stakeholders out in the field were had a lot of questions, so we started doing weekly calls, saying just call in, ask your questions. If there's an issue, we'll try to solve them. 
Uh, and I think I'm pretty proud of, of our responsiveness to the field. Uh, we have made sure that our trainees are on the list to get vaccinated, that if they're at the VA, they, they will get a shot like any other provider. Um, so I, we've included them as part of our workforce at, at every turn to, to make sure they, they, uh, they have a good experience with VA and of course that our veteran care continues. And do you think uh, as, you know, over the next six months to a year, as, as hopefully the pandemic becomes less of a thing, will these, will things go back to normal or will we see kind of a hybrid of what they used to be and what they are now? Well, I think that's a great question. It's a, what, $100 million question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, you know, things will go back, but they're not going to go back to what we call normal. I think virtual mm -hmm. care, I think we all agree, is here to stay. It's convenient. Yeah. I've, had, I've had virtual care. I've, I've had video visits with my doctors. Um, I think they're convenient. They're great. Uh, you can do a lot with them. You can't do everything, but you can do a lot. And so I think they're here to stay and they're going to need to be accommodated in our trainee rules and regulations going forward. And, and we need to figure that out. And truthfully, it's not just VA, of course, it's the whole health professional field that is going to have to figure this out. What are the right types of supervisory structures and requirements for trainees in this grand new world? So, mm -hmm. Stu, do you have any thoughts on that, too? Well, I, I agree with everything you've said. What I what I'd point out is that VA ends up doing unexpectedly interesting and important things as we go through this process. Because, for example, in the starting in the 80s and well through the 90s, the the most exposure that many health profession trainees had to working with an electronic health record happened when they were at their VA learning experience, and and I believe that that facilitated the adoption of electronic health records throughout. And I think we're also going to be in now where we are is in this leadership position of training people how to provide care and learn through telehealth, that we've got a systematic way to do it. We've got 120,000 health profession trainees a year coming through, and this is the environment of care they're in, and they're going to learn how to do it and we've uh, our office and and others are assuring that the supervision is there and the facilities are committed to providing excellent care through these modalities so i i think that'll be a, a kind of a fascinating uh, kind of sub thing that va does to fulfill the education mission to benefit veterans and the nation yeah and i you know, kind of reflecting on this moment where we're, you know, celebrating a 75th anniversary, uh, looking back, you know, to 1946, when, you know, we, the VA and the nation kind of faced this crisis about how they were going to provide health care, you know, I, and Sean and I have talked about this, how you just can't help but draw parallels to what's going on today. And, you know, there's a different type of crisis, but we're still just sort of like, you know, moving forward with this mission of how are we going to provide healthcare to our veterans? And, and um, to me, it's, it's interesting to draw those parallels between time. So what, what kind of excites you looking forward to the next 75 years? What, what excites you about the future? I think that the academic mission of VA has always been forward-looking, and we have 
been uh, at the forefront of innovation in how care is provided, and that means our trainees are involved in participating in, in those things. That's helped develop medical specialties and other professional areas that didn't exist before. So we can we know that VA has helped uh, through our academic mission contribute to development of you know addiction psychiatry, geriatrics, uh, polytrauma and traumatic brain injury, addiction medicine, uh, and a, a variety of other medical specialties. We've been in the forefront of funding innovations in training for uh, nursing with residencies, post-baccalaureate and, and um, nurse practitioner residencies and specialty training and a variety of associated health professions. And these innovations continue to come. VA continues to be an innovative system of care and our education mission is going to continue to adapt. I, I can't say what the new, you know, what the strategic goals will be that will be different in 10 years from now because we haven't gotten to that time yet, but I know that VA is going to be at the forefront of advancing, advancing those things. I, I agree with Stu. I think that, um, you know, we uh, are right at the cutting edge of new professions, new specialties, new levels of training. And we're always trying to push the envelope. And and yet sometimes we're the ones pulling the academic community along with us because, because we really don't have anything to lose. If our veterans need it, why don't we try it? We do have our own little experimental laboratory, which is basically this division that Stu runs. And it's our little uh, skunk works. Uh, for testing things and testing curricula and trying new ways of teaching folks. So I think that uh, we're going to continue to push the envelope and see what VA and veterans need uh, to drive our educational program. So I think that's what's really fun about this is uh, we get to have a very large sandbox to play in. We, there's been a lot of talk about Spanish flu, a lot of talk about polio, but one thing that we we see uh, a little less of a parallel is with the AIDS epidemic. And I wondered if you guys see any any parallels there, or or any way that in which the VA and, and academic affiliations maybe um, dealt with that in that time in the '80s, and and maybe how that can inform how we're dealing with things today. Well, one of the things that VA can do that other health care providing systems cannot generally do is is aggregate and analyze large amounts of data across geography. Um, and I know that that VA contributed substantially to advancing understanding a system of care for HIV as that illness emerged, because in part we were able to to work with more data than um, many other folks had and and even better data in a lot of cases than state regional health departments had and and I believe that'll continue to be a, a benefit that we have um, in addressing a condition like COVID because we've got a huge amount of data e even uh, 
well, you know, I don't know how extensive we can make those relationships yet, but the Million Veterans Genomics Research Program may allow us to make some linkages at a genomic right. level to process of care, outcomes of care, illness, and these things. And that's that's an opportunity that I, I hope uh, will be expressed. I know that there are groups within VA starting to work on these things now. Um, it's too early to say what the fruit of that labor is going to be, but I, I believe that we've got, because of our national integrated health record, the standardized system of care, standardized benefits, um, we have opportunities to learn really practical things that really nobody else in the country can accomplish. Sue, that's a great answer. I agree. That was uh, insightful and helpful, and, and I hope to see um, the results of that type of study. I think that kind of stuff's really exciting and, and innovative. That's that's what we're here to do a podcast about. So that's all the time we have. Uh, thank you both for being on the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for uh, inviting uh, us to come talk with you about this. It's our passion. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you.